I'm always uh, surprised at how quickly things accumulate. Laundry accumulates. I think right now in my house, I have a heap of laundry in the hamper that would give Mount Everest a run for its money. Or what about the dishes? Isn't it odd that every single day we clean the dishes and yet for some reason magically they just appear in the sink dirty all over again? Uh, The other day um, I was reminded of this fact. We had um, been doing some stuff with our kitchen and part of the process of that would be to buy some appliances for the kitchen. And so uh, we had ordered some appliances and they had determined a date that they were going to bring them, and we knew that it was going to take some time to get the appliances in the kitchen, and so we would need to have the appliances in the garage. So it's about a week ago. I get a call on the phone, and the delivery guy says, hey, I'm going to be at your house in about 20 minutes to deliver those appliances to you. And you know where that little red flag goes off in the back of your head where you say to yourself, oh my, I knew about this date, but I never put this date into my calendar. And I just got to tell you something. If you ever make a commitment with me and you do not see me pull out my phone, type it into my calendar, I'm not going to be there. (laughs) It just doesn't happen, does it? And so I think to myself, oh, that's fine. I've got 20 minutes. I'm going to quickly run home and organize things. Now, you probably don't know the law of accumulation. Maybe you do. But it's a very simple law. It goes like this. (laughs) If you haven't taken a look at your garage in a week or so, it's highly likely that three children have been in there and messed things up. And I've got to tell you, um, it was quite the frantic scene. We got home. We organized things as quickly as we could. The delivery guys got there. We were still organizing things. Accumulation. Now, I'm going to turn the conversation by asking a more difficult question. How do I deal with the accumulation of my sin before God? You see, this is a much worse type of scenario than getting caught with a garage like that. Think over the course of your life. Consider it. The adding up, the piling on of sin day by day, moment by moment. Some of us, when we think of it, might flash back like an old newsreel in our head. Or for others of us, we think of times away from God or choices that we wish we hadn't made but we did make or relationships that we've destroyed. How do you deal with this type of accumulation? I think people have tried all kinds of different things. Some compartmentalize their life. They say, that was the past. And in their brain, they set up a a storage room where they just kind of file all of those things away and they like to lock the door, throw the key away, and pretend like it doesn't exist. But there's a big problem. You still own the storage room. It belongs to you. Other people rationalize. They say, well, I had to do that. Others take the stance that if I'm not caught, I'm not guilty. I think uh, Josh was telling me the story the other day. He was meeting with a guy uh, while he was off at drill who believed that if he wasn't caught for doing something, then he hadn't done anything wrong. I got to tell you, that guy did not read Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart. (laughs) Others grow fatalistic. They say that nothing can be done. 
God won't forgive me, and I'm not going to forgive me either. You see, when we turn into Nehemiah 9, we see that all of those responses to sin are human solutions for dealing with the accumulation. But the people of Israel, they chose a much different response. Instead of burying sin, rationalizing sin, denying sin, or wallowing in the guilt of sin, they wanted to make things right with God. So we're going to read a beautiful prayer of confession here in this chapter. Let's begin with looking at verses 1 through 3. When you realize that everything isn't okay. The text reads, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now this is an interesting chapter. We've already covered the first half of it when we talked about knowing God. We said that the most important thing that you can do in this life is come to a knowledge of who God is. Not just a a head knowledge, but an experiential knowledge. Knowing Him. Really knowing Him. This is the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. The, the passage in verse 3 tells us that this prayer extended um, into three hours. They prayed for a quarter of the day. Oftentimes when you're looking at recorded prayers or sermons in the Bible, it usually just captures the essence of what was said. It's not a full manuscript of this particular prayer. And so here we have a condensed version of a three-hour prayer of confession. Now you look at verse 1 in that display. I made note of this two weeks ago, but it's a little foreign, isn't it? uh, Fasting, sackcloth, earth on the heads. Um, I just got to say this. I've been in church for 30 years, and I've never seen someone come into church with sackcloth and dirt on their heads. Anyone here? No. No. It's not something that we would do, but the Hebrews did this in these days because they wanted to make an outward display of an inward reality. When they knew that things weren't right with God, they kind of wore their emotions on their sleeves, if you will. Let me describe just a little bit about what these practices were for for biblical fasting. Um, It's not a weight loss program. It's not some way to punish yourself. No, it was actually a way to section off a portion of your life to free it up from interruptions so that you can meet with God. That's the purpose of fasting. Giving God your complete undivided attention. Uh, You take away those times that occupy a lot of the time of the day, meal prep, meal cleanup. Anyone spend a long time there? Uh, Imagine making everything from scratch like these people did. So they had time to meet with God. It's also a a physical indicator that you need to pray. When you feel hungry, you pray. Sackcloth, heavy, coarse material typically made from goat's uh, hair, black goat's hair. While it was incredibly fashionable, it was incredibly uncomfortable. And part of that outward display was the discomfort of the clothes reminded them of the discomfort of their hearts not being made right with God. Earth on the head. So this is most likely ashes. Every town would have a garbage heap and they would burn their trash there. So the people of Israel come to associate ashes with something that was disgusting, like a rubbish pile. 
So pouring dust over your head was like saying, I feel so low and disgusting. I am like rubbish to be burned. Very visceral, isn't it? This display. Now this conversation might seem odd to us today. I mean, words like confession, sin, guilt, shame. These are the kind of things that we just really don't talk about anymore, do we? We use euphemistic expressions to talk about these kind of things. We certainly wouldn't wear it. I mean, that's far too public. We keep it private. Even in our worship songs, we use language like I made a mistake or I messed up. When we talk about sin, it's a very uh, guarded and, and, and vague sort of conversation. And I want to suggest to you that this is why many people have that storage room of accumulation. You see, when you treat sin in those types of terms, when you're not transparent and vulnerable with it, it just accumulates. It's never being dealt with. Now, I know that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've come to know Him as Lord and Savior, that He's paid for all of your sins upon the cross. The Bible tells us that His precious blood was shed upon the cross to satisfy the righteous wrath of God. He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. Not only did He bear the penalty of your sins on the cross through His precious blood, but God also gave you His good life. It's as if your life is the perfect life that Christ lived on your behalf, so that in God's eyes, the Christian is holy, righteous, pure and blameless in his sight. But we also see in the Bible that Christians live in this tension of still struggling with sin. And so that a normal aspect of a vibrant and healthy Christian life is the confession of sins. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 or through 10 actually, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Proverbs 28.13, whoever conceals his transgressions, now that word transgression means to break God's law, will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I think of Psalm 32 uh, where David shares a personal experience where he moved from hiding sin to confessing sin. In verse 3 he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Have you ever carried a burden of guilt for a long period of time? That's like a, a physical effect. Look at verse 4, it affects your sleep. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So how did he resolve that tension? Verses 5 and 6, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. As we move forward, I find that this prayer from Israel is so raw. It's so authentic. They don't downplay the past. They don't ignore the facts. If we were to be in the court of law, if Israel was to be on the docket, the judge was to say to them, how do you plead? They would say, guilty. It's charged. 
want to take a look at this history with you. It's not a very glorious history for them. It's not something that they look back at with pride, but it's something that really happened. Look at verses 16 through 21, and this is where we're going to pick up in the second part of the chapter. The text reads, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return uh, to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and have committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You see in these verses, 16 to 21, a recounting of the exodus and the wilderness experience. As they're praying through this, they're, they're praying chunks of their history. Uh, and you can see those in the different books of the Bible. Remember, the exodus, uh, we talked about this two weeks ago, is God visibly tossed around the most powerful man in the world at this time, Pharaoh of Egypt, like a two-year-old tosses around a rag doll. He displayed his great signs and his wonders. And we said to ourselves, wasn't it odd that Israel would see all those things and yet would so quickly do an about face, would be ungrateful towards God? In fact, in my Bible, I've underlined the six different ways that the Levites referenced their sin in verses 16 and 17. They acted presumptuously. They stiffened their neck. They did not obey etc. These actions are depicted with different word pictures too. They acted presumptuously is the same phrase that um, the Levites use in verse 10 when they say that the Egyptians acted arrogantly. The idea here is that Israel was acting the same way as Egypt. Um, the stiff neck, that's a word picture. You ever seen a stubborn donkey or cow You know, trying to be dragged along? I've got one of those. He's a 120-pound Great Pyrenees. I tell you, when that dog locks up his muscles and he throws his butt down and goes like that with his head, he ain't moving him. It's very hard to deal with that type of response, isn't it? G.K. Buell says that this imagery is used because the Levites are talking about the golden calf. The Bible says that you become like that which you worship. And so like the golden calf, they become a stiff-necked people. It also says that they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. You know, this is just a very interesting thing with sin. God frees them, and all they want to do is go back. They want to be slaves again. You're thinking to yourself, well, that's just ludicrous. Why in the world would you want that? But that's how sin is. Sin's stupid. But remember, before we wag the finger at Israel, 
how would your life be if it was a biblical reality TV show? Let's move on in the story. The prayer moves from the Exodus and wilderness to God giving Israel the land. Verses 22 and 25. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Ahag, king of Ashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand, and their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And you captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your goodness. Now this is uh, the book of Joshua that the Levites are recounting. If you've never read through these history books before, I would encourage you to do that. And if you've never read through them before, I would encourage you to do it with a good study Bible. Uh, the ESV study Bible is a great study Bible. And one of the things I want you to do when you read through these histories is I want you to read the introduction that the study Bible gives you. It kind of gives you the lay of the land. It orients you to what you're dealing with. You see, the book of Joshua is interesting. Despite the reoccurring fits of doubt, grumbling, rebellion, and outright idolatry that um, Israel had displayed towards God in the Exodus in the wilderness, God brings them into a good land. He gives them houses. He prospers them. He gives them abundance. There's a word play in verse 25 that's very interesting. The text says that God brought them into a rich land, or you could translate that fat land, and they became a fat people. The idea here is that they liked God's provisions, but they didn't delight in God himself. Have you ever found yourself in that place? You want God to bless you, but you're not very interested in interacting with him? That leads you to a very bad place. And I would submit to you that this is the, the setup for the ultimate downfall of this people. Now we move into the book of Judges, verses 26 through 29. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back, killed your prophets. He would warn them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and made time, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commands, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Now judges, if you were to encapsulate this book, you can think of it as a cycle. It's a cycle of prosperity, sin, decline, oppression, repentance, 
and deliverance. And then after deliverance comes prosperity and it starts all over again. It's this tragic uh, downfall, a spiraling out of control of national, national Israel at every level, spiritual, political, economic, and social. They'd also developed a bomb shelter theology. Now, anybody have a bomb shelter in their backyard? No? Okay, I have two. Just kidding. How do you use a bomb shelter? Do you put one in your backyard and make that the place where you have family dinner? Is it where you spend your two to four weeks of vacation in luxury in the bomb shelter? No, you use the bomb shelter when fallout happens, right? That's what the nation of Israel did. When it was prosperous and when it was good, well, boy, they did what felt good and they wanted to worship the fun gods, like the gods where you can go and visit prostitutes and worship anyone you want to worship and do whatever you want to do. But when oppression came, well, it was time to turn back to the bomb shelter. And they would call upon Yahweh and he would save them because you know, he'd always done so in the past. He'd do so now. Even though they treated God in this way, the text remarkably says that God's faithful to them. So here we see uh, history moves forward. Um, If you know anything about the history of the kings, David becomes king. He leads the Israelites into a golden era of prosperity. He's the king, a man after God's own heart, and he establishes them economically, religiously, in every way that you can think of. But behind closed doors, David compromises privately. His son Solomon then compromises publicly. And the kings start spiraling out of control and lead the nation of Israel away from God. And that's where we pick up at verses 30 and 31. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the land and the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So that's the summary of the book of Kings. As Joseph, God was saying to them, you want to live like the nations? I'll let you live with the nations. But I love the way that we see God's character on display all through these verses. Did you pick up on it? I didn't make mention of it yet. But over and over and over again, we see that he is a God who has long-suffering love. Did you see that? The patience of mercy and mercy of God written all over these pages. Verse 17 says that he forgives Verse 19, he doesn't forsake them in the wilderness. Verse 22, he gives them a good land. Verse 27, he saves them from oppression. Verse 31, even when he gave them over to the nations in exile, he did not make an end of them or forsake them. His mercy and his patience are stamped all over the history of Israel. They're stamped all over the history of your life if you would look and see. Everywhere that you look in your history, God's mercy is there. Israel couldn't think of a time that God forsook them or deserted them. They couldn't think of a time where God finally came to the point where he firmly and finally said, that's it. 
I'm finished with you. Warren Wiersbe states, against the backdrop of Israel's unfaithfulness shines the bright light of God's faithfulness. I want to talk to you about patient love for a moment because I think that it is one of the most foundational characteristics of who God is. God is a long-suffering, gracious, merciful God. One of the most beautiful chapters written about love in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. When the Apostle Paul talks about what is love like, he begins the list of what love is like by saying that love is what? Patient. And when we tend to think of patience, uh, we think of a lot of different variety of things. We think of ourselves being um, keeping our mouth shut when we're dealing with a difficult person. We might think of ourselves not flipping our lid when we're driving to Boston at 6.30 in the morning. Uh, we might think of ourselves being patient by investing with a long-term strategy in mind or not yelling at our child when they've had their third or fourth or even fifth temper tantrum. We might think of ourselves finishing a degree at night or we might think of ourselves not saying or thinking that choice word that you want to say or think when your computer crashes and you lose your sermon. <laughs> not that that's ever happened. But when Paul describes love is patient, he uses a Greek word that means a forbearing, persevering, patient love towards a person. It's a self-sacrificial love. The, song, uh, the long-suffering love of God, like I said, is foundational to his character. That's why these people feel like they can even go back and pray to God right now after that history. They learned of this attribute of God all the way back in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This expression of the character of God is literally all over the Bible. You find it here in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, verse 31. You find it in the book of 2 Chronicles. You find it in the book of Numbers. You find it in uh, the Psalms, all over the Psalter. You find it in Joel. It's everywhere. God is incredibly patient. God is incredibly loyal and long-suffering towards us sinners. We even see it in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, former football star and coach Tony Dungy, um, who, you know, he's a great coach. He's no Bill Belichick, but he's great. Um, he saw a picture of this kind of love when he looked at the patience of his dad. He tells this story. My dad was usually a quiet, thoughtful man. A scientist at heart by training, Wilbur Dungy loved to be outside enjoying the scenery. Fishing allowed him time to contemplate, to listen, and to marvel at God's creation. My dad used fishing to teach his children to appreciate the everyday wonders of the world God created. The lessons were always memorable, whether we caught a lot of fish or not. 
Although we fished countless times together throughout our lives, one particular day stands out in my mind. It was the summer of 1965. Now, summers in Michigan are beautiful with comfortable temperatures and clear blue skies. I was nine years old and my brother was five. My dad had taken us fishing at one of the many small lakes around Jackson. On that day, my dad was teaching my brother and me how to cast. We were both working on it, mostly in silence, until my dad's voice finally broke the period of silence. Hey, Lyndon, don't move for a minute, please. I looked back and watched my dad move his hand towards his face, calm and deliberate. He continued to speak. Now, Lyndon, always make sure that you know not only where your pole is when you're starting to cast. At this point, I realized my dad was working my brother's hook out of his ear. But also, make certain you know where everyone else is around you. I learned something about proper casting that day, but I also learned something about patience. And I got to tell you, years later, when I hooked myself in my hand, I realized how much it hurts. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is long-suffering. But we also see that God is light. The Apostle John talks about this. The meaning of that is that God is pure, that God is holy, that he desires that his people would walk in the light, that we would walk according to his ways. He wants us to be free from sin in our life, to be morally blameless before him. Now you might be asking yourself the question, well, How do I step back into the light if I've sinned against God? And I'll tell you the answer to that is you confess. Confession is a renewed commitment to walk in the light. So how do you confess sin? Well, I think there's three principles in these remaining verses of this text. The first is that you must agree with God. The second is you must be vulnerable with God. And the third is that you must commit to do things God's way. So let's look at agreeing with God, verses 32 and 35. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all of your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You've been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works." Now in verse 3, that word confess comes from the Hebrew word yada, which means to praise, to give thanks, to confess. I think uh, when people think of confession, they think of just telling God your laundry list of sins. God, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. But that's really not what confession is. Confession is actually an act of worship. 
We confess God's name, our faith in him. We tell him the truth. We confess sin by agreeing with God about his moral character and uprightness and tell him the truth of the matter with our own sins. I think you see these elements when you look here at the Levite's prayer. They praise God as the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And they tell the truth, don't they? You have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. So that when you confess sin before God, you're not only saying, God, I was angry today, I confess that to you, but you say to God, God, you are a patient God, a God who is slow to anger, and I was not like you today. And by extension, then you are worshiping the creator of the universe. Be vulnerable. If you look at this entire um, prayer, there is only one position, uh, petition, and that's found in verse 32. They say, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. I mean, think about their condition. They're living in their land, but things still aren't right, are they? It's a raw, authentic, real prayer. You know, when you've been caught in the consequences of sinful decisions that you made, sometimes you can almost believe that God doesn't care about you anymore. Well, surely after all that I've done, God wouldn't look upon my situation and take notice. I believe that God wants us to come to Him, though, in the midst of that in our pain. I believe that uh, when I'm in my worst place, that's the most important time to come to God. You might feel confused, hurt, disoriented, even angry. And while I would never encourage you to act irreverent towards God, I would tell you to come to God as you are. So that even if you're feeling a bad attitude, even if your theology is a little out of sorts, even if you're just in total crisis, come to Him. He wants to hear you, and I will tell you this, I don't think God rejects your imperfect prayers because he hasn't rejected my imperfect prayers. We also see in verses 36 and 37 that things aren't quite right. Um, They say we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. So the irony of the situation is they're in the land that was meant to be uh, God's bountiful blessing to them, and that bountiful blessing is going to another king. They're slaves in their own land. They're not sugarcoating reality. Sometimes, the only thing that you can do, or all the time, is you just have to be pure, honest, even if the honesty of the situation is painful. I want to tell you this. It's a leadership principle, number 31. You can write this one down. Uh, I'm going to do something about these leadership principles at some point. I have no idea what I'm going to do about them, but people have been asking. Um, So just know that something will be done. I don't know. (laughs) That was really clear. That's what you expect from a preacher, don't you? All right, verse, uh, or uh, verse, principle number 31. Leaders know that healing and recovery come through painful honesty. Things don't get better until you're 
willing to acknowledge the state of reality? Do you regularly deny the facts? How's that working out for you, by the way? It doesn't work, does it? Instead, we have to be honest. It doesn't work in our family. It doesn't work at our job. It doesn't work in our relationship with God. But remember, God is slow to anger. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's compassionate. He's abounding in steadfast love so that when we come to him vulnerably, he hears our prayers and he works that work of recovery and healing in our life. The last thing we see, so we've talked about agreeing with God, being vulnerable. God, now we're committing to do things God's way. Verse 38, because of all this, we have made a firm covenant in writing on sealed documents um, are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So this is a plan of action. I'm not going to get deeply invested in this, and you guys are saying thank you, Jesus. Um, I'm just going to simply say that their commitment is towards obedience now. So if disobedience had marked their history from Genesis to 2 Chronicles, they're saying essentially obedience should mark our history moving forward. And I'm going to say this, confession is always followed by a decisive commitment to do things differently. Close to 10 years ago, I got on a plane and flew some 38 hours between uh, changing flights and layovers to the country of India. Now, India was a land quite unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And that's just a picture of the human pressure of the land. It was culturally different. Uh, the food was different. It was religiously different. India predominantly practices Hinduism. The name Hinduism is actually a label that Westerners have devised for India. It's the religion of India. That's what the term means. Its indelible marks are all over the nation, from extravagant temples that are led by their professional priests called Brahmins, to the little uh, shack idols constructed uh, by their animistic devotees who have no training. This religion is entrenched in India. Hindus believe in a vicious cycle called reincarnation. Now here in the West, some of the practitioners of New Age have sought to glamorize reincarnation so that if you die, you become something like a beautiful butterfly. But it's really just a, a very vicious cycle, an unforgiving philosophy. Evil actions, especially violent ones, result in a person accumulating bad karma. The more bad karma accumulated, the worse off you are in the next life even to the point where human crimes against those who uh, were born in circumstances that they couldn't help are not that bad. They say that the caste system was ended in India, but practically speaking, as you see it worked out in the day-to-day -day life, it's still very much alive. This is one example of how man-made religion attempts to deal with sin. It's all about human achievements. You must earn your way to God or enlightenment or the afterlife or whatever else uh, you want to have happen to you. But it just doesn't work because our sin accumulates even if we do good things. The, the balance doesn't work out. One good thing plus one negative thing doesn't equal nothing. Think of it like this. If you murder one person and save another person's life, are you still a murderer? 
Of course. You're still a murderer. This is why human achievement won't work. It doesn't deal with sin. It doesn't make things right. Now, while I was in India, I met a man named Dr. Chaco, an amazing guy. He was leading prison ministry, orphan ministry, and even was the president of a seminary in India. He was giving us a message, and he was talking to us about how he shares the gospel with Hindus. He says, when I say to a Hindu, believe in Jesus, they look at me and say, sure thing, I am happy to believe in Jesus. And then they add Jesus into their pantheon of other gods, one among some three million. However, when I say to them, how does your religion deal with sin? Then I get this look of a blank, hopeless stare. Because many Hindus realize that their system does not provide the answer for sin. It's only a vicious cycle that they can't break free from. And that's when I tell them about Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can set you free from the vicious cycle of sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34 and 36, Truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Maybe that accumulation is weighing upon you. How are you going to deal with it? I'm here to tell you today that there is only one clear-cut way to deal with sin. And that answer was provided for you from God the Father through sending God the Son to live the life that you couldn't live, to die on the cross in your place. The only way to deal with sin in this life is to trust in Jesus. Have you done that? Have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior?